welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this weekend. You can go ahead and open there. I hope everybody had a, uh, a sweet weekend. Um, you know, I think we need about 16 more of those coming up. Uh, that's the best jokes I had for today. If you didn't get it, you're going to have to go like get on Facebook or something. But uh, it's been a good weekend. I hope you guys are having a good weekend. Let me tell you, though, the best part of the weekend has not happened yet. The best part of the weekend is just beginning as we gather here together. We've been in a series in Romans called... Called before and after. And I told you at the beginning of the series, what we wanted to focus on is we wanted to just focus on what it was, uh, what our picture of ourselves was before we knew Christ. And then we wanted to compare that to a picture of ourselves after we have come to know Christ, after we have been saved. And so we began this series several weeks ago, and we've been through so far chapters one through three. And chapters one through three define what it looks like for a person to be unsaved, a person awaiting judgment by a righteous and perfect judge for our sin, sitting under the wrath and waiting for the punishment of God. That's, that's who we are before salvation. We looked at that very in depth over several weeks. But at the end of last week, at the end of chapter three, the scripture takes us into a transition. This transition is simply put in the words of Paul, in the words of the Bible, that we become justified by faith through Jesus Christ. So we were under wrath, but now this transition is becoming justified by faith through Jesus Christ. Some key words there that we need to know is, number one, justified. Justified means that we owe no punishment. That when we stand before God as a perfect judge, that there will be no punishment owed for us. Now, the difference between being justified and innocent is that it's not that we didn't do anything worth being punished for. It's simply that our punishment has already been given out. So we have the ability to stand before God justified, owing no punishment, owing nothing to him, because Jesus Christ already took that punishment. Now, how do we access that? The Bible tells us that we are justified by faith through Jesus Christ. So faith is the other word that we need to know. Faith simply means certainty in something that you cannot see. And often when we read the Bible, the Bible says that if you will just believe in Jesus Christ, we take that as very literally, if you believe Jesus Christ. In our English language, we take the word believe and we make it a mental thing. Like, I've, I've done the math, I think, uh, I think I know who Jesus is, and sure, that story sounds good, I believe that could be true. Uh, faith and belief is, is different. Faith is a, a certainty that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he will give me salvation if I will only trust him. And I put my trust in Jesus Christ to care for my soul. So we become justified by faith through Jesus Christ. This is the key to salvation, or this is how you define salvation that we access by faith. So, so we've been through that last week. Chapter 4 gives us some examples of what faith looked like in the Old Testament. We're not going to read that today. We're going to move on to chapter 5, but I would encourage you to go back and, and study through Romans chapter 4 to get a picture of what it looks like to have faith, what that looks like in us. Today, we're going to move on to chapter 5. And what chapter 5 does is it gives us a picture of who we are after we have been justified. It gives us that after of who we are once we've been saved. So read with me 
Chapter 5, this is going to be verses 1 through 5. Paul speaking here. He says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to chapter 5 here in a second. So, so Paul begins to describe to us what it means to be justified. And, and as we look at justification, this should be our identity. When we talk about ourselves as Christians, we should not see ourselves as churchgoers. We should not see ourselves as good people. We should not see ourselves identified by our works. We should be identified by the fact that we have been justified by Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives us a picture of when we are justified by Jesus Christ, what do we have? So your first take home truth today is when justified, we have number one, peace with God. And that comes from verse 1. Now, to understand the importance of having peace with God, we have to go back to what we learned in chapters 1 through 3. And it's simply that we did not have peace with God. As a matter of fact, we were in conflict with Him. James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world, that's a way of saying people who like to sin, uh, that is the same thing as having enmity with God. That is um, being opposed to God, being in conflict with God. We oppose Him. And when you sin, when you and I sin, what we're actually doing is we're taking God's goodness, we're taking His rules, we're taking His directions, and we're doing our own thing. We are opposing God in our lives. We're opposing God in the world. So look at it this way. If you can imagine going to war, and not like modern day cool war, Navy SEAL and tank kind of stuff. Think about the old days like Braveheart War. You guys seen the movie Braveheart? If you haven't, that's your homework. Go home and watch Braveheart. So think about it. You're going up to the battle line. You and all of your life standing on one side of a battlefield. And you look across the battlefield at your enemy. And your enemy is God. That's what the Bible says about us before we become saved. We are opposed to him. He is opposed to us. We are in conflict with him, planning, planning to fight each other, or actually fighting each other. Now, in those kind of wars, if you get into a battle, you get into a war, and you realize, I can't win this, you can raise your white flag and sue for peace. What that means when you sue for peace is you go up to your, the person you're opposing, you go to the person you're in conflict with, and says, we don't want to fight anymore. We want this conflict to end and you ask for what are the terms of a treaty what can we do to end the conflict so if we go to God who we've opposed with our lives we've opposed with our sin and we say what can we do to end the conflict what are your terms for peace God's reply is your sin must be punished which means we're still in conflict with God. But here's where God does something special. is in those terms for peace, he says, your sin must be punished, but here's what I will do. I will provide somebody to take the punishment for you. I will punish them to, to punish them for the conflict that we have, and we will no longer be in conflict. And that's what he did with Jesus Christ. He puts Jesus Christ on the cross. He throws down all of the wrath that he has for you and me and our sin on him so that we 
can no longer be an enemy of God so that we can have peace with him. And for this reason, once we accept that gift of Jesus Christ, we are in harmony with God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. For the rest of your life and beyond, you live in peace with God and absence of conflict. Now, now let me say this. Some of you are here today and you just haven't quite grasped the salvation thing yet. We're praying for you. We, we want you to come to know Jesus Christ. We're glad you're at church. Our ultimate goal is for you to be saved by Jesus Christ. And, and what you're dealing with right now is a little bit of conflict in your soul. Every saved person, every Christian in this room has dealt with that. Everybody knows what it feels like. We, we have a word for it. It's called conviction. And what it feels like right now is your heart is in turmoil because God is telling you, I want you to be saved. I want you to belong to me. I want you to give your life to me, but you're holding back. See, God is giving you a direction and you're resisting him. That's sin. And so that conflict, I just want you to know, is God calling you? He's saying, I want to have peace with you. What it, bring, what it costs on your side is just simply surrender to him and allowing him to be the savior of your life. Paul continues on in this, and your second take-home truth is uh, when justified, we have access into grace. That's verse 2. Now, grace is another churchy word that we don't use a lot outside of church that, that is very, very important to us. Here's what grace means. The definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God. And even that's a little wordy for me. I was thinking about that, and I was like, you know what grace means? It, it means that we're not special. God never looks at us and goes, that one's special. I love them more than everybody else. You and I are not special. But yet even in that, God looks at us and says, I still love them. I still desire them. And we're made special not because of anything we're done that gets God's attention. We're made special because God's attention is on us. That's what grace is. And we often think of grace as like this emotion of God. But, but it's clear here, the way that Paul puts it, is that we can stand in grace. It's clear here that there is an eternal positioning where we stand in a position of grace for now and into eternity. That we belong to him. That, that he sees us as special even though we don't belong that way. So what Jesus Christ does on the cross when he gives his life for us, he opens the door for us to be justified. He opens the door for us to have salvation as he gives us the ability to stand in a place where we are special and we are adored by God. Now the Bible talks about this positioning in multiple places like us being the children of God. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, pray after me. And he directed them to begin with Abba, Father. Abba is not just a word for father like the English word. Like if I say my father, that probably means I don't have a very good relationship with him. The word Abba in Hebrew means daddy. We go to God like a child who cries out to their daddy. In other places, in other places, it tells us that we have been adopted into the family of Christ. We did not belong to him, but he chooses us, he adopts us, and he makes us his own. In other places, it tells us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That means the inheritance that Jesus Christ would have as the Son of God, you and I also have. We are children of God. That's what grace means as we become his children, and he views us like children. Think of what that means for those of you that have kids. You love those kids. You also want to kill them sometimes. <laughs> but you also love them. 
You love those kids. And you love those kids not because they did something for you. You love them because they're yours. Think about it. What did that squealing little baby ever do for you? Gave you a gift of a stinky diaper? Woke you up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Puked on your shirt right before you have to preach? They do nothing for you, but you adore them anyway. I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. When Oakley was born, she was less than two minutes old. You know, they, they get her, and they, they, she's still covered in blood and whatever else is included in all that. And they laid her up on Jessica's chest, and, and Jessica started talking to her. And I'm, about, I'm like about to pass out. Like, oh my gosh, that's a person, and it's here. And Jessica grabs this little baby, less than two minutes old, and I'll never forget my wife looks at her, and she goes, I can't believe you're mine. Listen, when you are in the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, that's what it's like. God holds you as his child, not because of anything that you've done, not because of how good you are, but because he chose you, because he made you his. And we live in that access, or we live in access, we have access into that grace because of justification, when we are justified. The Bible tells a story that, that really brings us home what it looks like for God to have grace on us and for us to stand in that grace. Many of you know the story of the prodigal son. It's a parable that Jesus told. Jesus said, let me tell you a story so that you understand more how my father loves you. It's a lot like this. He says, there was a certain man who had great possessions and he had two children. And the youngest child was a brat. And this younger child came to his father and said, I want my inheritance now. At that time, that was the equivalent of saying, I hope you die so I can get your money. And so the dad takes all of the things that would have been that son's inheritance and gives to him and says, here you go. And that son goes and he lives on that money and he parties and he drinks and he sleeps with prostitutes and he just lives it up until the money runs out. And then we find this son who doesn't have a name in the story, by the way. We find this son, the only thing he can do to keep himself alive is he gets a job feeding pigs. And he is so desperate at one point, he looks at the food he's given to the pigs and he says, I wish I could eat some of that. I am that hungry. And he makes a decision. I'll go home and ask my dad if he'll hire me as a servant. I know I can't be his son anymore because I've done all of this bad stuff. I wasted his money. I disrespected him. I ran away from him. But maybe, maybe he'll have enough mercy on me to make me his servant. And as the son is walking home, the dad is at home working and he looks up and he sees his son coming towards him. And he runs down the road and he grabs him and he hugs him and he starts giving orders. Bring me a gold ring. Bring me a robe. Go slaughter the calf. We're going to have a party. My son is home. He was dead, but now he's alive. That son in that story did nothing to earn the love and the grace of his father. It was given to him because of who his father was. Listen, Jesus himself told that story to describe me and you. What Jesus wants, what God wants is for us to just come home, for us to come back to him. And he just lavishes us with love that we don't deserve. We can't make ourselves good enough for him. We are loved by him because of who he is. And listen, Christians, non-Christians, no matter where you're at here this morning, I just want you to know, you're not the only person who struggles with grace. Everybody in here struggles with grace. Because it's hard for us to grasp, how could you love me so much? How could you make me your own that way? 
And so we live our life, even though we have access into grace, even though we live in grace, mentally, we kind of argue with ourselves. And we say, my relationship with God is based upon what I do or don't do. If I do really good things... Maybe God will be happy with me. And so I have a week where I've done my devotions every week. I've resisted several major temptations. I've been at church. I've done a couple of good things. I've witnessed. And I walk up to God thinking, I'm doing really good. You must really love me. Oh, but next week, when I give in to those temptations and I get busy and I, I don't do my devotions and I lose my temper on somebody, I hide from God because I think that he couldn't possibly love me that way. Listen, that's not what the gospel is. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that even though we fail and are unlovable, God loves us with a deep, undying passion, and nothing will ever take us away from Him or take us away from His love. No matter what, if you, are a, if you belong to Christ, you will be His forever. Now, if that was all I had to say this morning, that would be a great message. But Paul goes on and he says, not only so, also. Or not so, not only that, also. It's like his way of being uh, Billy Mays. You guys remember Billy Mays? The infomercial guy, he had a beard and he was always like, OxyClean! And he's doing all this stuff. He's like, call now and we'll give you not one, but two OxyCleans for $19.95. And what does he always say? He's always like, but wait! There's more. And so Paul basically, he says, but wait, that's a lot. But wait, there's more. And so verse 3, he tells us, and this is your third take on truth, that when justified, we have excitement in trouble. The words that he uses there is that we glory in tribulation. Glory simply translates to we have joy or we can boast and brag. And tribulation means trouble or testing. What he's saying is you can be excited in trouble. And you see this in the book of Acts. You see this in the, in the disciples that are recorded there. Paul and Barnabas go out and they're spreading the gospel. And if they're like a lot of us, they're thinking, I'm doing really good things for God. God probably has a lot of favor on me. Yet they get arrested, they get beaten, and in one particular instance, they're thrown in jail. Jail is not a good place. Especially wasn't a good place in the Roman Empire. There was no, no double jeopardy. There were none of the, the things that you and I enjoy as Americans. They could beat you. They could chain you up to the wall. They didn't have to feed you. It was a really bad place. But what did, what did Barnabas and Paul do? They sat in that jail cell. And they were so full of joy and excitement. They sang praises to God in the hardest point of their life. Or one of the hardest points in their life. That's insane. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody in that position say, I've got joy in my heart? And the truth is, is if you understand your positioning in grace, you understand who you are, you know that I belong to God. That means that no matter where I'm at, He knows where I'm at. No matter what I'm going through, He knows what I'm going through. Because He is God, He can stop it from happening. I have a belief that if God is allowing this to happen, He's doing something for a good, good purpose. And so Christians, we live with this hope that God is doing something. Paul says when you have tribulation or trouble, it creates patience. See, patience is just simply the ability to adore something, knowing that the end will come. 
several years ago we bought a, a hay baler and uh, uh, of course everything breaks on everything I've ever bought in my life. I buy a brand new car and break down before I get out of the parking lot. And, and we had this hay baler and, and it was broke down and of course when, when you're bailing hay this is like you got to beat the weather and you've only got so many hours to do this and the hay baler was broken down and we were trying to work on it and it was one of those days, mechanics know this, where things just weren't working right. Nothing was coming loose. Things were breaking everything and I got so frustrated I started, I got mad and I got up kicking and hitting the thing and ah, I was yelling and my grandpa was sitting right beside me and he just sat there and laughed at me. Not a bit of excitement, not a bit of frustration. Why? Because he had been through this enough to know and to be patient that, that if you just continue to work the problem, the problem will eventually be fixed. That's what patience is. It's the ability to endure because you know what the ending is. It says patience works experience, which just simply means I know how to handle this situation because I've lived through this situation before and experience works hope. That's why James says in James chapter 1, he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When you have problems, have joy in that. Because God is doing something in your life. He is working on something in your life. Life, And you can be excited, though the circumstances right now may not be good, that once you have endured it, it will be for your ultimate good. I, I know you guys can tell that uh, I lift a lot of weights. You can tell. Just big muscles, right? You know how bodybuilders build muscle? It is they go to the gym and they put themselves through this miserable experience of lifting heavy things until their muscles ache and burn. What's actually happening in that moment, when you start to feel your muscles burning, your muscle is actually tearing itself down. And, and then they go home and they take the nutrients that they need and they allow their body to rebuild that muscle. And that muscle will, re will rebuild itself just a little bit stronger. And you repeat that process over and over and over and over and over again and those muscles grow and they get stronger. And so for a follower of Christ, sometimes what God will allow us to do for our own good is he'll put us through this excruciating time where we, where we hurt, where we burn. But God knows that every time we go through that, we will rebuild just a little bit stronger. As a matter of fact, I would argue that if your faith is not growing through problems, your faith is probably not growing very much. So, so our faith begins to grow, and faith leads us to have hope. Remember, faith is an assurance in things that I can't see, which means that I have hope when I don't know what's going to happen. That's your next take-home truth is when we are justified, we have, number four, hope. You can find that in verses four and five. Hope is a hard thing to define. And what hope is, hope is where desire and expectation meet. When you have a desire for something to happen and you believe it will happen, that is hope. And I started thinking about it. What if you start playing with that formula a little bit? I have a desire for something to happen and I have an expectation it will happen. That's hope. What if I take one of those things away? What if I have a desire for something to happen but no expectation it will happen? That's the definition of depression. What if I have an expectation that something will happen, but I have no desire for that thing to happen? That's the definition of anxiety. 
But hope is when we have an expectation that something will happen and a desire for it to happen. So as followers of Christ, we live with this constant hope. I know that God is going to work all things for good in my life. I know at the end of my life, I will be with Him. I have that expectation and I have that desire. And for every single instance in my life, I have hope. I've got a picture coming up here. This is a man. I've told this story before. It's been a couple years. This is Horatio Spafford. And you want to talk about a, a Christian who went through tribulation. This man went through some stuff. He was a lawyer in Chicago, and he built a pretty big financial empire. But in 1871, the Chicago fires came and basically wiped out his entire fortune. Not very long after that, he lost everything physically that he had. Not very long after that, his young son passed away. With all of this hurt and frustration in his life, he told his wife, he said, we need to get away to Europe for some time so that we can relax. And as he was getting on the ship, a last-minute a last minute, um, meeting or something kept him from getting on the ship. He said, I will meet you. And he sent his wife and his four daughters on the ship to cross the Atlantic to, to go to Europe. But on the crossing, the ship sank. And he received a telegram from his wife, and it said this, Saved alone. His four daughters had drowned in the middle of the Atlantic. And so as he got on a ship and he went to, to where his wife was, as he, as he crossed the Atlantic, one day in that voyage, the captain called him up, up to the bridge, and he said, please, please come stand up here. And he said, I just want you to know, I thought you'd want to know, this, this is the area where the wreck happened. We're passing over the watery graves of your four daughters right now. And Horatio Spafford took that in and he went back to his room and he began to write a poem, later become a song. And this is what he wrote. He says, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the kind of hope that doesn't exist in this world. You don't find that kind of hope in celebrities or in big houses. You don't find that kind of hope in having a lot of money or prestige. You find that kind of hope in only one thing. I have hope in my Savior. And here was his hope. That one day... Though this life had ended for his family, one day he would be reunited with his children. This has been over a hundred years ago. Horatio Spafford right now, this very instant, sits at the feet of Jesus, surrounded by his children, worshiping the God who saves and who gives hope. That's something that you don't find in the world. That's only something that we get when we are justified, when we have salvation, when we know Jesus as our Savior. Paul continues on. The next thing that he says, it says, when justified, we have the love of God poured into our heart. That's in verse 5. Now, you can really take that two directions. As I was reading that, I was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's love is poured into my heart like I love others like God loves others? Or does that simply mean that the love of God, like I love for God, I have a love for God, and so I learned to love God, and it hit me. Th those two things are the exact same thing. 
to love others like God loves others and to have a love for God. Those two things are the same thing. Once we experience salvation, what we experience is a relationship. See, our faith is, is, is more than rules. If you're coming here and you're just trying to figure out which rules do I have to figure out, which ones do I have to follow to get into heaven, how many can I break and still get in, you've missed the entire point. The point of salvation is relationship with God. And when you come to know God, what happens is, is you begin to love Him and you trust Him and you live in this peace with Him. You build a relationship. God actually defines this relationship as somewhat like a marriage. We belong to Him. He belongs to us. And then when that happens, God begins to recreate that love in you and me. We think differently. We act differently. We want different things. We see people differently. We love in a different way because of how God loved us. I like to picture it like this. Like if you were to take a cup, just your regular cup that you drink from at home and, and put, put it under the faucet and turn the faucet on. Over time, that cup is going to begin to be filled. It's like God filling us with his love. But if you never turn the faucet off, the cup begins to overflow. And so long as that water is on, that cup continues to overflow. That's like our hearts with God. God begins to pour His love into our heart. We feel His love. We develop a love for Him. But the more of that love that we get, the more it begins to overflow from us. And we begin to love people we don't even know. And we begin to look like Christ. We, the Bible calls us, when we become one of His children, the Bible calls us a new creation. It says we've been born again, we have been made new. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is number six. When we are justified, we have the Holy Spirit. That comes from verse five. Now, now to understand this, there's a, a key that you need to understand is that when you become justified, when you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. There's no little angel on your shoulder. The Holy Spirit is within me and every believer in this room. And this is, this is meant for our good. The Bible defines the Holy Spirit. First off, he's, he's part of the Trinity. He's part of God. He's, he's part of the triune nature of God. But the, the, the Bible defines his jobs as, number one, conviction. When, when I do something I know I'm not supposed to, I feel that little bit of pull. A little thing that you shouldn't have done that. It's when I'm driving down the road and I see somebody hitchhiking and there's a voice that says, you should pick them up. It's that thing that says, hey, you, you've not been very faithful. You need to get up this morning and go to church. You need to give. You need to love. The Holy Spirit convicts us and tells us what to do. And as we grow, we learn to listen to that. And by the way, conviction gets more gentle as time goes on because we learn how to listen to God. If you're a young Christian, God has no problem yanking you up and getting your attention. But as you become a more mature Christian, that conviction becomes more and more subtle, more and quiet as we learn how to decipher it and listen to it. The Holy Spirit is also defined as a comforter. Jesus said, I will send to you the comforter when I am gone. The Holy Spirit comforts us. And many of us have been through here. In the hardest moments of our life, it just feels like you get a big spiritual hug from the Holy Spirit. And God just says, I'm with you. We've got this. You're going to make it through this. And lastly, the Holy Spirit will gift you 
with different abilities. All of these things relate to connection and relationship. And through this, through being convicted and comforted and building a relationship and gifting, we become new people. We begin to look like Christ. And all of this is amazing. Listen, this is, this is something that Christians sometimes overlook. If you're like me, you grew up in church and sometimes you don't really know what this means. Listen, God says, you did nothing to be loved, but I love you anyway. You can stand in my grace because I am that good. You can have hope because I love you. You are justified because of the death of my son. All of those things are true. And so Paul's going to circle back here. And he's going to say, let's, let's reanalyze and re-explain how that is possible. Read with me. This is verses 6 through 11. Paul speaking, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to go back to that. Listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God. Listen to that. We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So Paul's going to recap a key doctrinal point to make sure that we understand. A doctrine is just something that the Bible teaches us. And the key point is this, is that the story of salvation, the gospel, is not about your work. It's not about what you've done. The gospel is 100% about God's work. So that's our next take home truth. Our salvation is through Jesus' work on the cross and nothing else. Listen to what he said. He said, while you were still sinners, while you were still dirty, while you were still opposed to God, when you were still an enemy of God, when you lived the life that you wanted to live, when you rejected him in every way, during that moment, that's when Christ died for you. Christ died for you before you even thought about trying to be good. So, so how is it that you would think that being good is what gives you his love? His, his love was already given to you before you had a clue about your need for his love. While we were dirty. And Paul goes on to describe the specialness of this. He says, you're not going to find very many people that will die for a dirty, bad person. You might, maybe, find somebody who would give their life for a really good person. Maybe. But Jesus Christ died for the ungodly, for the dirty, and for the broken as they were. The story is not about you and me. The story is about him. Verse 8 says, God commended his love to us. Listen very carefully. God is madly in love with you. And some of us need to hear that. For the past several weeks, we've talked about... We've talked about God as a righteous judge. We've talked about God's wrath. We've talked about God's punishment. And some of us needed to hear that. That's something I have to remind myself of. I have to remind myself how dirty I am and how, God, how great God's love is. But maybe you're in here and you need to hear something different. You may already know how dirty you are. And you look in the mirror with shame. And it hurts you. And you know all of the things about the Bible are already true. 
But what you need to hear is that all of that doesn't matter, that God loves you anyway. That's the gospel. The gospel is not clean yourself up so God will love you. The gospel is, it's your worst that you can possibly be. God loves you anyway. You may be sitting here today planning to completely disregard every single thing that we have talked about. God still loves you. He's still a righteous and a perfect judge, but he still loves you. And nothing you ever do can make him love you less or love you more. That is the power of his love. Sometimes for invitation, we sing a song called Just As I Am. And the time at the end of church, I call it reflection time. And, and listen to the words of this that we sing to remind ourselves. It says, just as I am, thou will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. Because your promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come I come. Recognize this. You can come to God no matter how dirty you are. I've got a video that's about to pull up here I wanted to share with you. This is a, a pastor named Alistair Begg. This is a, a video clip that just went viral, and I think it is the best description of God's love and grace that you can get. Um, he's going to be talking about a story. It's coming Easter time. Many of you know this. Is when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in between two thieves. And one of them, in the midst of his own execution, he looked over to Jesus, who was also dying, and he said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus Christ replied this to him. He says, today you will join me in paradise. Listen to how Alistair Begg describes God's grace. To say, if you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Angel. So, wait, just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> you guys said I never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That's good stuff. The man on the middle cross 
said I could come. We don't have to clean ourselves up to impress him. We don't have to earn his love. We are reconciled to him because of his work on the cross. Our last take-home truth this morning is salvation is available to the dirty and the broken. As a matter of fact, salvation is only available to the dirty and the broken. See, verse 11 says that we have joy in this justification. We have joy in this salvation because we were once lost, now we're found. We were once under his wrath, and now his love is poured out on him. And that is why we worship. This story is unbelievable. So this morning, there's, there's two responses to what the Bible teaches us. There, there's two ways that you can take this, and it really depends on where you're at and how, how your relationship with him is. Firstly, if, if you are a follower of Christ, make this your identity. Your identity is not that you are a church member. Your identity is not your job. Your identity is not how moral you are, what denomination you're a part of, what habits you have, what mistakes you made, what family you come for. Your identity is that you are a child of the King, that He loves you and that He saved you, nothing else. And as you walk out into the world, you live that way and you share the gospel that way. I'm nobody, but I belong to Him. There's a contemporary song that I really like, and it, and it takes, you guys know those name tags that you wear, and it says, hello, my name is, and you put your name Brian, or I put Brian, you put something else, I hope, otherwise that's weird, but anyway, anyway, and the song goes, it's in the, the course of the song goes, hello, my, my name is child of the one true king, I've been saved, I've been set free. That's who we are. Go out of here today and forget your, your stress about whether or not you're being good enough for God. You can't be good enough for God. That doesn't even matter. You belong to Him. But there's some of us in here today, Liv, if you want to start coming up here, that, that you can't make that your identity, at least, at least not yet. Because you don't belong to Him. You've not been adopted. You're not a child yet. But you can be. If you go through Romans chapter 5, I want you to read through it later this afternoon. I want you to look for the word gift and see what it means. Paul calls salvation and justification, he calls it a gift that is given to us. Think about how a gift works. I take my money, I go sacrifice my money to purchase something, and I give it to you for free. And what God has done is he took his son and he purchased your righteousness, he purchased salvation for you, with his son, and he's just going to give it to you. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. And you can become one of his children. That's all there is to it. So today, you can walk out of here still in conflict with God, or you can raise your white flag and say, God, I surrender. I just want your salvation. No matter what it is that you are, whether you're a believer or you're struggling with becoming a believer, don't leave here the same way that you walked in. God is calling you to something greater than what you have now. Stand and worship with me.